Good morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We pray that your spirit will join us, that our conversations this morning will be about you and our hearts and minds will be drawn ever closer to you. We want to lift up Boyd to you today. That you will send your healing ministries to work in his uh, life and, and body as, as you know is best. Be with his family and bring them home safely to us. Uh, I pray for Dennis as he is undergoing this radiation and chemotherapy. You'll give him strength and courage. And if it be your will, may this cancer go into remission. And we want to thank you that you've brought my brother through five courses so far. And I pray that you will continue to be with him and strengthen him and bring him to, to full healing as it be your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in our quarterly Redemption in Romans. And the title for this week's lesson is Justified by Faith. And I want to start by reading the first two paragraphs in the first day of the lesson, Sabbath's lesson there. And let's read the first two paragraphs there. It says, In this lesson we come to the basic theme of Romans, justification by faith. The phrase is a figure based on law. The transgressor of the law comes before a judge and is condemned to death for his transgressions. But a substitute appears and takes the transgressor's crime upon himself. Thus clearing the criminal, who, by accepting the substitute, stands before the judge not only cleared of his guilt, but regarded as never having committed the crimes for which he was first brought into court. And that's because the substitute, who has a perfect record, offers the pardoned criminal his own perfect law-keeping. Thus the guilty one stands before the judge as having never transgressed. I'm going to pause right there. <laughs> As you think about this, this is Reformation theology. This is classic Reformation theology. And as we examine it this morning, um, let's be, let's be uh, thoughtful and reflective and, and ask, uh, ask some questions. And as we add to it, let's add just briefly to it, um, from last week's lesson, if you remember... The words from last week's lesson that justification is, this is a quote, God's declaration of a sinner as righteous in his eyes, unquote. And that was in last week's lesson. So we have this description of this, this judicial enactment where an innocent comes and is uh, condemned uh, and takes the place of the guilty. And, and we have this other idea of justification as God's declaration of the sinner as righteous in his eyes. Or from Tuesday in this week's lesson, if you look at Tuesday in this week's lesson, it says, we are justified when we are declared righteous by God. And so we're dealing with this question of justification. Do you as, you, as you hear this description I just read in the paragraph, the quotation from last week about um, God's declaration of a sinner's righteous in his eyes, or from Tuesday, we are justified when we are declared righteous by God, any questions come to your mind? Any problems arise in your thinking? Yes? I just have a question. If it was based on the law from back there, whenever they're looking at, was, was it allowed for someone to come in and, and be in their place? Okay. Already, she's already raising an excellent point, which is, uh, I, I'm going to ask the question here, what are the assumptions made in this first paragraph? There are multiple layers of assumptions made. And let's, let's identify them. She just mentioned one, which I find the most egregious of all, and, and I've listed it last in the assumptions that I listed, so we'll come back to it. But let's just list the assumptions made. First off, the very first assumption is justification is a legal problem or legal issue. First assumption. Second assumption, sin is a legal problem. 
Next, sin and crime are synonymous. You notice how it talks about sin and, the, and then the sin is like a criminal. So they're making sin and, and, and crime as synonyms and thus sin becomes primarily focused on behavior because crime is, is behavioral. Justification is the process of changing our records. Did you notice? We get his perfect law keeping ascribed to our records. That's what justification is. But justification happens by declaration. This is another assumption. Sin can be transferred. Did you notice that assumption? Sin can be transferred. And pardon seems to be the goal here. We want to get a legal pardon. Justification is God doing something to change how God sees us. Another assumption. And then, most egregious of all, and this has uh, been debated for almost since the origin of the Christian church, way back to a a Christian uh, theologian named Bozo, who asked the, the question, is God's, is it legal in God's government, legal in God's government to punish the innocent in place of the guilty? Because that's what they're describing. The innocent is being punished in place of the guilty in a judicial enactment. And they call that just. How would you like to live in a kingdom in which innocent people could be punished in place of the guilty? What does such a concept do? Think about the implications of this concept, that we can punish the innocent in place of the guilty. To me, it means that the person that's asking for that is just after some kind of vindication. That, you know, if they won't give it to one person, then someone else can step in and take it. But it's required somehow for punishment or devastation or death to happen to make that person happy that, that has caused that law to be in place. Think about, think about what it would say about the kind of law that you would have in a kingdom. If in a kingdom it was legal for innocent people to be punished for the guilty, what kind of a law would that be? And if we put this theory forth that this is what's happening, that the problem is that we've broken the law, and it requires punishment, and the innocent came to be punished in our place. If we put this forward as, as, the, as the idea of justification, what does it say about God's law? What kind of law is this? Did you say that louder? It an, becomes an arbitrary law. Yes, Ben. What's the point of punishing an innocent person? Yes, what is the point? You see, what, what kind of, back to the question, what kind of a law would demand that somebody be punished, and, and, and then you could transfer that punishment to an innocent party and still have justice? What kind of a law is that? It's an arbitrary law. What did Satan allege about God? What kind of law did Satan allege God had? An arbitrary law. You see, what this kind of concept does is it disconnects the, kind, the idea of cause and effect. What the scripture teaches, the, the one who re- sows to the carnal nature from that nature reaps destruction, Galatians chapter 6. This, this idea deconstructs that. There is no law of cause and effect anymore. It's not a natural law of how things were designed to run. Christ didn't come to actually fix what was broken. He came to pay a legal penalty that was arbitrarily applied by the one in charge to him and then dec- gives a declaration a proclamation that those who are actually guilty aren't guilty. Everybody with me? 
Let's go. Let's 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 push forward through this idea. Ellen White had concerns about the the way justification was taught. This is what she wrote in Faith and Works, page eighteen. The danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining a as a people false ideas of justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. On the point of what? Justification by faith. And this is where she goes on next. Very next words. Well, I wonder why, I wonder how he's going to confuse our mind. I wonder where he's going to focus confusion. Here are the next words. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. I have been shown that many have been kept from the faith because of the mixed, confused ideas of salvation because because the ministers have worked in wrong manner to reach hearts. The point has been urged upon my mind for years is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we're going to come back to that phrase, imputed righteousness, in a minute. But what do you hear her saying uh, that, that the, the wrong focus is? The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Christ as his relation. The justification, is she saying that justification is going to take a legal emphasis? That the law would be depleted of the true knowledge of Christ? Christ is the living law, Yes. The law in in living form, the law of love, a living being, a real person. When you hear the description that I read in the first paragraph of our study guide, what did you hear? Did you hear the beauty of the love of Christ? It's all about our sin. The whole lesson is all about our sin instead of about Christ. Or do you hear legal description? A legal transaction. Now, if Paul were here today, let's say the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, which we are studying this this quarter, and you asked Paul, hey, Paul, could you tell us what you meant by justification? What might Paul say? Thank you. Excellent. Um, I've never heard of that word. Uh, You'd have to tell me what that word means. You see, I I wrote in Greek, that word is an English word based on Latin. We never used it. And, and why is it that we have this idea in our thinking that this whole justification is a legal problem? Well, in our legal justice system, what's the language base for our legal just, justice system? Latin. And so we have these Latin words, and we, are, we have this, this ingrained thinking, and so we have these words that come from Latin, like justification, sanctification, propitiation, expiation. But when Paul wrote, Paul wrote... Dikaiosune, which means translated, and you can look at your different versions, either righteousness or justice. Or he wrote dikaio, to make righteous or to justify. And so let's turn to Tuesday's lesson. If you turn to Tuesday's lesson, in the first paragraph, it says, What is this idea of justifying as found in the text? The Greek word dikaio, translated justify, may mean... Make righteous, declare righteous, or consider righteous. The word is built on the same root as dikaiosune, righteousness, and the word dikaiome, righteous requirement. Hence, there is a close connection between justification and righteousness, a connection that doesn't always come through in the various translations. Now listen to the conclusion after they gave you the definitions, which are quite right. Here's the conclusion. 
we are justified when we are declared righteous by God. Now go back to their definition. They, they got it right. Dikaio, translated justify, may mean three possible definitions. Make righteous, declare righteous, consider righteous. Why did they choose the declare rather than the make? What do you all think? What do you, which do you think? Which definition of the word "dikaio" fits best? Yes. Make yourself righteous. No, no, it's not about. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. If I'm suggesting that we make ourselves righteous, no, 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 no. I'm talking about God making us righteous. Then you can declare it. Yes. So is it God declaring us righteous, or is it God using His grace, His power, His energy, His resources to make us righteous? So thank you for clarifying. No, we're not making ourselves righteous. Yes. When we first come to Christ, before we have a life transformation in this process of sanctification, are we declared righteous when we accept God before we're actually growing to become righteous like Him? Oh, that's a great question, isn't it? Before you actually are considered righteous even though you're not? Ah, but I guess that's the question. What does it mean to be righteous? to be set right, to be right with God again. If you talk about being set right, are you talking about set right in doing or relationship? He's asking, are we talking about being set right in doing or set right in relationship with God? Good question. Let's, 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 let's keep pondering these as we, as we pull more evidence out, more evidence out. Let's, let's try to pull these questions together. Next, next paragraph in the lesson, it says, Before this justification, a person is unrighteous and thus unacceptable to God. After justification, he or she is regarded as righteous and thus acceptable to him. Now, do you notice how we're not regarded as unrighteous in this definition here? We're actually unrighteous. But now, when we become righteous, the lesson says doesn't say we are righteous, we're just considered righteous. I, 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 said, this, uh, I said this last week to my, to my nephew, I said, let's say you actually have cancer, and you go to the doctor. Which would you prefer for the doctor to consider you uh, healthy and consider that your cancer is in remission, or would you actually rather be healthy and have your cancer in remission? Which would you prefer? It didn't take him long to figure that out. So before I push on, any is this idea, because this is, this is the tension. Is justification something that's declared but has not been achieved? Or is, something, is justification actually a process that re- requires or is inherently built into it a change in the believer? What would be the problem if justification is declarative only? Justification is when God declares us righteous before we are actually righteous. What would be the problem with that? Yes. Would you not make God a liar? Excellent. Does God declare things to be so that are actually not that way? No. Does he play tricks? Is, is he conning us? It's like, okay, justification and accounting. He accounts us righteous. So when we are justified, we have an angel putting a little accounting mark next to our records in heaven. This person is now seen by God as being right. The rest of us in heaven, us angels, we know they're still not righteous, but God now thinks they're righteous. 
Is that justification? Yes. Maybe part of the problem is when we think about when God says something, we think that's what happens. Like, he created it and it was good. So if he declares us righteous, we must be. Okay. So is God's declaration causative? So his, his, so one idea would be, if God declares us righteous, in so doing, when he speaks it, it becomes so. So his speaking our righteousness makes us be righteous. What do you all think about that idea? That would be, that would be force. Yeah. Well, then how would Christ's death fit in all this? How is his death connected to our righteousness? Or is there a connection? Is there a connection? Absolutely. Here's what it says in Romans 3, 21 through 26. This is the, the heart of this whole discussion. This is out of the NIV. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How does this version come across just generally? Like the Sabbath school lesson he says. Does it sound legal? Do you notice those words in here that you see as justice, translated justice? For instance, um, he did this to demonstrate his justice. King James translates that he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because it's the dikaio or dikaiosune. It can be translated either way. Do you hear it differently if you hear, he did this to demonstrate righteousness versus justice? Do those words hit you the same? No. Same Greek translated either way. The, the, the translators have to, have to make their choice on it. How would you interpret this, this passage here that Paul is describing, this heart of the gospel? Any thoughts? Well, Graham Maxwell says that uh, God can save and heal all who fully tr- trust in him, period. Does anybody dispute that? Does anybody dispute God's ability to save and heal all who genuinely trust him? No, I think that's the heart of it right there. That's the heart of the gospel. What's it, John 17, 3. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and now sent. What we're talking about here today, does a person have to know the mechanism of how the atonement achieves our salvation in order to be saved? No. We don't have to know that. Do you have to know God? Do you have to trust God? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So here's my paraphrase of those same passages. And you can follow along in your version to see whether you think I'm getting uh, getting it close. Starting in uh, Romans 3.21. It says, but now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way, that did not come from the written code, but is exactly what the scriptures and the Ten Commandments were pointing, pointing your minds toward. This perfect state of being comes from God and is created within us by God when we trust him. Our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. 
There is no difference amongst any ethnic groups, for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness, and are deformed in character and fall far short of God's glorious ideal for mankind. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy that has been provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate he is right and good, because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequence of sin and has been falsely accused of being unfair. So he did it to demonstrate he is righteous at the present time, so he would be seen as right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. What do you think? Yes. So what you're saying in essence is that if um, Jesus had died uh, living a perfect life, we wouldn't be able to be healed even if Jesus hadn't died by God. In other words, we have to have the remedy of Jesus and his perfect life in order for us to have the healing. That's my understanding. And, and we're going to bring some more evidences to bear on what Jesus actually accomplished and, ha- and, and how th- there's confusion and, and why sometimes the language leads us down this other trail of legal issues rather than actual restorative accomplishment regeneration process. Yes. Well, his death also is, is a statement in answer to Satan's deception at the beginning that he won't surely die. Excellent. Excellent. He's saying that his death accomplished many things. And there's no question about it. Colossians 1 talks about all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Meaning that Christ's death had to reveal the truth to destroy Satan's lies, to solidify unfallen beings, and to win us back to trust. But it also says that Christ's death, 1 John chapter um, 3, verse 8, was to destroy the devil's work. And the devil is working to destroy the image of God in man and put his image where God's image should be. To, so to recover or restore godliness in humanity. It says in Hebrews 2.14 that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So his death was to destroy Satan and his power. And it says in 1 Timothy uh, 1, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1.10 that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. So his death had, had multiple um, aspects, but the goal was to eradicate sin, and to restore humanity back into the perfection he originally intended. That was the goal. Yes? If salvation is simply a legal payment, there's no guarantee that there's any heart change. It's dodging a bullet. Man, I made it. Hey, God, God took care of that. I can still be who I am. Whereas if my heart is being regenerated and changed, and I am more convinced about the loving character of God, then I've developed a relationship with Him. I like it. Excellent. Because this is exactly where we are in Reformation history. Do you understand, again, um, back uh, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, actually almost 3,000 years ago, God, through the prophet Daniel, gave a prophecy. That there'd be 483 years and then Messiah would come to achieve the work to do an end to this oblations and sacrifices and so forth. He then also prophesied after Messiah completed his work, there would be a counterattack by the enemy. And Daniel called the, man, uh, called the little horn. In Thessalonians, Paul says, the man of sin will arise and pose everything that sets himself up against and set himself up again in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. 
And so we have the, the description, both old and new, of this counteroffensive. Now, what is the counteroffensive? Well, we do not wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. The wep- on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, we demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. This warfare that this little horn or this man of sin is, is, is perpetrating against the saints. Remember it says in, in Daniel that the little horn warred against the saints until something happened. In the NIV it says until um, God pronounced judgment in the favor of the saints. In the King James it says until judgment was given to the saints. If you check the Hebrew, the Hebrew there actually means to impart something. And so what you find happening is this prophecy that Christ was going to come to do the mission that was going to be necessary to redeem humanity, to eradicate sin, to defeat satanic forces, to heal the universe, mankind and the universe from this, this sin problem. That there would be a counterattack on planet Earth, and that this man of sin would misrepresent all Christ had done and set himself up in God's temple. Now, which temple would that be? The one up there or the spirit temple? The spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And we are waging war over thoughts, concepts, ideas about the knowledge of God. That's how we're waging war. We have divine weapons to demolish that. So he's looking down the corridors of time and says it's going to be 2,300 years until the sanctuary will be cleansed. What sanctuary? Is it the one that the little man of sin set himself up in, proclaiming himself to be God? Is that the sanctuary? Possibly? Well, I think that's what's going on here. He's looking down and saying, hey, this, sin, this, this man of sin, and, God, and what Christ has done is going to be twisted into pagan constructs. We're going to misrepresent everything as, as Christ dying to pay penalties, to appease wrath, to, to assuage anger, to uh, get God to be gracious and forgiving. We're going to have God, Mary, and all the saints in heaven pleading to the Father to hold back his anger and wrath. That's what we're going to have. And then the wine of Babylon is going to be taken and drunk, and everybody's going to see God in this way. And then there's going to be a time, though, when the sanctuary be cleansed. A reformation process starts. And we've seen Reformation going on for 500 years. But what's the heart of it? The heart of the, of the wine is an angry, wrathful God who has to have blood in order for him to be willing to heal and save us. And that is the final piece to eradicate from our thinking so we can get back to the Bible which says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not save his son, but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The fullness of the Father dwelt in the Son bodily. We see a complete unity here amongst the Godhead in Scripture. And God is calling now at the end of time a people to come back to the knowledge of him. And that we can then stand up and take this message, which actually brings real healing. That we are set right with him again. This is how I see what's happening. So when you think about a document like this on your computer and you justify the margins, when you do that, have you just declared your margins to be in line? Have you put a set of lenses on so that when you look at them, they appear to be in line? You set them right in your eyes. Have you pardoned them? Have you actually done something to put what was out of line back in line? Now, justification 
Is it something that's declared, something that's just visually skewed? Is it something that is legal or is it actually an achievement of taking what is out of harmony and putting it back in harmony where it belongs? Yes. David is a good illustration of that in Bible. I believe God did a work in his life that made him his good friend. It wasn't just a word that he spoke. So what is it then, if this is, if it's actually justifying, it's actually taking what's out of line and putting it in line, what's out of harmony and putting it in harmony? The question, what is out of harmony, what is out of line, since sin, that needs to be set right? What is it? The heart and mind of man or God's angry, wrathful attitude because we broke his law? Do you understand there's the other version? God's anger had to be dealt with. God, in order to be just, required that he vent vengeance upon sin and sinners. And therefore, Christ came to take our place to receive that vengeance and that wrath. And this is what's being set right. And so in some versions, there is man not only be reconciled to God, but God is being reconciled to man. And and, and that idea is so infectious that uh, Graham Maxwell was mentioned a moment ago. He wrote the, the SDA Bible commentary on the book of Romans. So if you get the SDA Bible commentary and read the book of Romans, Graham Maxwell wrote that. Interestingly enough, after he submitted his, his uh, uh, work on the book of Romans, it went to the publisher to publish, but somehow before it came out, somebody made a little edit of what he wrote and inserted words that he didn't write. And the editor doesn't know who did it. The publisher doesn't know who did it. It's un- a mystery. But they said that God had to be reconciled to man. Which was not true, and Graham didn't write that. Happened in Corinthians, and I think, was it, I'm not sure, but was it Heppenstall that wrote the one on Corinthians? Anybody know? But the same thing happened there. They made that insertion there as well. So somebody behind the scenes, we've never been able to find out who, made this idea and inserted it into our commentary that says that God had to be reconciled to man as well as man reconciled to God. It's not in the scripture, and it's not what was put there by the bias who did it. Yes? Fortunately, it did give the right key text. Second Corinthians five nineteen states the truth. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. There was a question in the back somewhere. Yes. I was just saying, uh, thinking about the way we see in church and how it says that we need the Sabbath to open our eyes so we may see. Well, is this, is this not the Sabbath? Are we not trying to see uh, so that we don't have to be? Um, have to think that we are rich and we have everything, but we really are naked and we need this. That's exactly right. So, justification is really so simple. It's Christ coming, becoming one of us, so that in his personhood, in his life, in his human brain, he, he became sin who knew no sin, you see, that he would actually achieve all we couldn't achieve. And in Jesus Christ, humanity was put right with God. Does everybody understand what I just said? He partook of our humanity so that he could fix all that sin had done, all the damage sin had done to humanity. And he did it in his own person. Now, the, And so if you want to look at it this way, the human species was saved, healed, restored, put back right with God in the person of Jesus Christ. The question now remains, how many other specimens will join him? Because of what he achieved, we can partake 
And this is what the scriptures teach. We partake of the divine nature. We get the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has done, reproduces it within us. We become partakers of his character. Our minds become united with his. I mean, it's a regenerating process that happens because of what Christ has achieved in our behalf at the cross. So what is justification then on our basis? So the race, the human race was justified in the person of Jesus Christ, the species. What about you and me as individuals? How are we set right? Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does this scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. What does this mean? Say that louder. Abraham found God to be trustworthy. Would you say that's a fair interpretation of what we read, that Abraham found God to be trustworthy, or Abraham came to a point where he actually trusted God? Is that a fair reading? Was, is our natural state, as we're born into this world, are we born, since the fall of Adam, in a state of genuine trust with God? No. Was Abraham, up until this point that we just read, in a genuine trusting state with God? Is it a change in a person to go from a position of distrust in God to a position of trust in God? Is that a change? And which do you think is the largest hurdle to get over? The position of not trusting God and coming to that point where you genuinely have surrendered your life and trust Him, or the rest of the healing that happens afterwards? Which is the biggest hurdle? So was this this trusting God that Abraham was brought to, not by his own work, the Holy Spirit was working on him. The Holy Spirit was was bringing evidence to him, convicting his heart. God was reaching out to him. It wasn't any uh, any effort that, that, that Abraham was able to do in his own work to get himself to that point. But the Holy Spirit brought evidence, convicted his heart. It says in Revelation, Christ, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opened the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Which door is that? Door to the heart. And what does what does Christ knock on the door of your heart with? Is it his fist? It's with truth and love. You experience his love. From the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Paul says in Romans three, and the truth, and we see it, and and we're brought to conviction. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we make the choice, though, because the Holy Spirit won't choose it for us, we make the choice to say yes. I open my heart. Is that a change? In the believer. That is what was described here. When he trusts God, when God saw that Abraham's heart had been moved from distrust to trust, he recognized he was now righteous. That's what it's saying. Yes. Don't you think that people who don't agree with what you're preaching think that they trust God, though? I mean, how do you know what trust is? I'm sure they believe they trust God wholeheartedly, but they don't agree with what you're preaching. Yeah, I have patients in my office all the time. I ask them if they believe in God, do they trust Him? And they say yes. And they're there to see me because they're completely consumed with fears of finance and fears of um, how, <clears throat> how the future is going to turn out and, and all these worries of, of what was, is going to come uh, around the corner that we, we don't know about. Does a, uh, a two-year-old child in a relationship with loving parents worry about how the electric bill is going to get paid? Are they stressed about whether the the cupboards are going to have food? 
They don't worry about that stuff. Why don't they worry? They trust the parent. You see? This is the kind of trust. When we have actual trust, the life is changed. It cannot... The law of God is a law that has real effect. It's a law of cause and effect. And when we really trust God, there is an automatic transforming process that happens. The Holy Spirit fills the heart. He comes in. He begins regenerating, renewing, transforming. It's not an instant process that everything is worked out because we have old neural circuits and habits and conditioned responses that need to be worked out. But the heart of the man is changed. Where when we have those old habits that come up and, 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 and trip us up, when we're converted, we're grief-stricken over that. Oh, man, how could I do that again? I'm sick of myself. Lord, I just, I, I'm so sorry. Where the unconverted man does the same thing over again, it's, well, you know what? I had every right to do that. It wasn't me. It was the woman you brought me anyway. You see? And there's this excuse-making rather than sickness of heart. So credited. If you go to the actual Greek, the word translated credited here is the word logizomeia. And here's what it says in the uh, Strong's lexicon. It says, the word deals with reality. If I logizomea or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. So when, the, when God reckoned that Abraham was righteous, it's a fact. It's not a declaration or a claim. It's real. Abraham's heart had been changed from a position of distrust of God to a position of trust in God. And that is the key. Yes? Can you talk a little bit about that whole Abraham, Isaac, and substitute issue as it relates to uh, sacrifice and trust? Yeah, she's asking about uh, talking to explain the Abraham-Isaac situation and where Abraham was, uh, was told by God to sacrifice Isaac and then, the, and then the lamb came and substitute and all this kind of thing going on. Um, there are multiple ways that, you, that that is explained. One is through the eyes of a penal substitution model. I don't see it that way. If you remember the context of Abraham's life, what had Abraham been praying for before he got this instruction? To know God better, to see. And this is what Christ, this is what Christ meant in the New Testament. He said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Remember this? What did he see? This is what he saw. Abraham was told to do this so he could enter into a closest intimacy and empathy with God's position and what God would be going through. He was told to go sacrifice his son so he could be put in the, in the place of experiencing the ang- angst and and anxiety and stress that the father will be going through when he sends his son. Because Abraham had been praying, I want to know your heart, father. I want to know your heart. And so this was, this was not a model of penal substitution. This was a calling uh, to, to tell us, hey, this is what I'm going to be doing, but it won't do you any good to sacrifice Isaac. It won't do you any good because you can't fix the problem. I will send, and then the, the substitute comes. I will send my son. Because only he can fix the problem. And he will take your place and your son's place and everyone else's place. How? How does Christ become our substitute? (laughs) The penal model is, he just like we read there, court of law. He comes in and the governmental system executes him and puts punishment on him. That's not how God's law works. What's God's law? The law of love. And when God began creating life, 
what was the basis that he built it on? His law, right? So it's a design schematic. It's actually the principles that we were constructed to operate upon. And when you step outside those principles, what happens? The wages of sin is sin when full grown brings forth death, uh, James chapter 1, verses Romans 6, 23. And so if you step outside the protocols that life is designed to operate upon, there is death that comes. This is what Adam did when he, when he broke God's law in Eden. He stepped outside those protocols and he would have died, except we just read in Romans 3, God left for a time the sins committed beforehand unpunished, or he suspended the full consequences of the reaping. God began intercession. What is intercession? Well, that wine of Babylon would teach us the intercession is Jesus standing between us and the Father to shield us from the Father being able to see what we really look like, be, be uh, holding back anger and wrath. We've got a, a friend in court who protects us from the, the righteous judge who will kill us if he gets a close look at us. Have you not heard ideas like this? That's not intercession. That's, that's, that's pagan. That's pagan. Intercession is, as soon as man fell into sin, Father, Son, Holy Spirit began interceding with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding back satanic forces for our destruction. We see the hedge of protection in the book of Job and, and Elisha with the angels around holding back evil forces. He began interceding in our hearts and minds. It says right in Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, put a desire for good in our hearts without the Holy Spirit working to intercede with that power of sin in our lives. We would have no hope. So he's interceding in our hearts and minds and he's interceding with sin itself. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he interceded with the disease process at very self by becoming sin for us. So this is what intercession is. And you can read this in Romans chapter 8. It says the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans and utterances that we don't understand. It says that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us, but gave him up. How we not along with him also give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, he is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. Also, that means in addition to. In addition to who? To the Father. We just read. God is for us. Who can be against us? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? You see? So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a complete perfection of unity, interceding on our behalf for the healing, restoration, and, and, and recreation of mankind back into God's ideal. That's what intercession is. Yes. Dennis, when you give a reference, could you give the chapter and the verse or verses so I can share this with somebody else? Ro- well, the, the uh, Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31. 8.31, thank you. Yes. When Ellen White was referring to these false ideas of justification that were being presented from pulpits, could she be referring to a legal penal model? Or am I overstating it? Well, here's what she says in Christ Object Lessons, page 317. I want you to notice the connection here. Because that traditional penal legal model also has this idea. And tell, I'd like to really see how many hands have seen or heard this presented in the church. That when Christ presents us in the courts of heaven before the Father, he presents us in the robe of his righteousness. So when the Father looks at us, he can't see the deformity of our sin and character. He can only see the perfect robe of his Son, who, which covers us. How many have heard that? Seriously. Yes. I call it candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, coat it with candy. It looks good on the outside. 
but it's still rotten to the core. Listen to this. This is, this is cool stuff. Christ's Object Lessons 317, and then we'll go back to 311, where she clarifies. It says, the wedding garment provided at infinite cost is freely offered to every soul. By the messengers of God are presented to us the righteousness of Christ, justification by faith. Now, would, would most people agree that the wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ? Yeah. The justification by faith? Now listen to this. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. This robe, which is the righteousness of Christ, woven in the loom of heaven, has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this he offers to impart to us. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin, but the Son of God was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Is that a covering or is that a transformation? And so when we talk about being presented to God in the robe of righteousness, we should be talking about a regeneration, that the law is written on the heart and mind, as it says in Hebrews 8 and 10, the the new covenant experience, that we have the mind of Christ. We become partakers of the divine nature. It is a real achievement and accomplishment. And this other model obstructs us from achieving that. Yes. So Jesus uh, eradicated sin from the human heart and mind. When he uh, died, he gave us the remedy. And so when we're born again in Jesus, then we uh, take on his righteousness and are transformed through a lifetime of following him. Yes, I think you're exactly right. And the real root to it, there's growth and development and maturation, but the root to it is heart principles. Before Jesus Christ, our heart principles are fear and selfishness, watching out for ourselves, promoting self, protecting self, exploiting others. We may be very righteous on the outside like Paul the Pharisee was before his Damascus Road experience, but his heart was all about self-promotion, self-protection, self, self, self. That is our birth state, and, and that's why we have to be reborn. And the reborn is being set right with God, coming back to a trust relationship. And then we have a new heart that loves others more than self. Now, we still may have habit patterns to work out. We may still may have old condition responses and, and, and defective neural circuits that haven't been healed. But our heart longs to love God and others more than self. And we will give ourselves, and this is what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, those ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They've but come... Really the point at where we put on Christ's role and we accept Exactly. When we surrender ourselves and trust to him and say, regenerate me, I want a heart to love you and love others. I can't do this in my own right. I love you. I love what you've done. Make it right in me. Yes. I was just Beautifully said. He said that form spiritual Israel. That brings us into unity, also known as at one meant the day of atonement, the day of all of us becoming under one head, even Jesus Christ, as it says in the New Testament. That is exactly what's happening. We are unified again in heart, mind, spirit, attitude to love God and love others more than self. It's self-centeredness that we're born with that causes all the division. 
When Adam sinned, he deviated from the design protocols for life. The design protocols of life are other-centered love. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. And we ought to give our lives for each other. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. If love does not seek self, love is seeking others. So the law of God is the law of love, which is the principle of other-centered giving. And I don't have time to go through the whole list of these evidences in nature. One example that we use over and again is this principle of breathing. Every time you breathe, you give away carbon dioxide and the plants give back oxygen to you. This is how life is constructed to run. If you deviate from that law and tie a plastic bag over your head, legal pardon will not help you in that state. You have to have the plastic bag removed. You have to be put back in harmony with the law. Okay? Mankind, Adam, broke God's law in Eden when he broke trust. He believed lies. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. You're in a loving, other-centered marriage, giving of yourself freely. Your spouse gives freely to you. It's truly as God designed it. And somebody close to you, your own mother or father, comes to you and lies to you and tells you your spouse is having an affair. No truth in it. But if you believe the lie, will something inside of you change? Yes, love and trust is broken by lies belief. Satan is the father of lies. He lied about God. As soon as Adam and Eve believed those lies, love and trust in their heart was broken. And love and trust, break, broken love and trust results in fear and selfishness. The principle of survival of the fittest, which we're all born with today. And let you see how deeply wired this is into your, into your being and how strongly it motivates you. Just imagine somebody takes and holds your head underwater, is trying to drown you, and you have a knife in your hand. What will you be tempted to do with that knife? How strong will that temptation get before you finally drown? She says strong enough to let him have it. Understand, this is our nature. We have this instinctual drive now to kill others to save self if we have to. But God's kingdom is greater love is no man that he give his life for others rather than taking a life to save self. We give our lives to save others rather than take a life to save self. These are the two principles in our, in our condition. We couldn't fix this condition. We're all born with this in our, in, our, in our hearts and minds, wiring in our neural circuitry. Christ came and partook of our humanity. Adam came into the world out of dust, perfect and sinless. Eve taken from a sinless being side, perfect and sinless. How many of us came in the world this way? No. Sinful mother, sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. Jesus' humanity. When he took humanity upon himself, did his humanity come out of a dust where God made a new body out of dust, perfect and sinless? Is that what happened, like Adam? No. Did it come out of the side of a sinless being, like Eve? No. Did did his humanity have a sinful mother and father? No. 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 See, he's unique. He's not exactly like Adam. He's not exactly like us. It says in Galatians 4.4, he was born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death. So he partook of our humanity, but his father was the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus Christ, he could experience temptation in every way, just like we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. But in his mind and character, the law of love was never broken. So in the human brain of Jesus Christ, the two antagonistic principles warded out. He could do for us what we could not do. He could live a perfect life of love in the face of being tempted to act in self-interest. And so it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. It says in James chapter 1, each one of us are tempted when we're drugged away and enticed by our own evil desire. How many of you have been tempted by your own emotions? So if those, are both of those scriptures true? 
then that means Jesus had a humanity that could experience emotional human temptation. Well, look in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, did Jesus suffer human emotional anguish? And by his own words, what were those emotions tempting him to do? To not go through the cross, to save himself. This is to, but, but he was tempted in every way, but yet without sin. Because every time in Jesus Christ that the temptation came, he overcame it by loving others. I, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. So this is how he is our substitute. He is not our substitute to pay a legal penalty to God. He is our substitute to actually destroy the infection of sinfulness and restore God's perfect law of love back into humanity. And this is why he had to die. Because at any point along death's approach, if Christ, who had the power, exercised his power to stop death from taking him, who did he just save? Self. And the only way to destroy selfishness is to give self perfectly in love. And this is what Christ did. And thus, in Jesus Christ, we have a human brain. And you understand, it was his human brain that all this went, happened in, not his divine self, because it says in James 1 that God cannot be tempted by evil. But Christ was tempted. It was his humanity that was tempted, not his divinity. So this victory was achieved in humanity. And thus, it says in Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And so this is why he's our substitute, to actually achieve victory, to restore, to regenerate, to put back in mankind um, the law of God, which had been obliterated by, by sin. And there, if you go to our website, um, on some of those uh, handout materials we have, there's a whole long list of references that, that document this over and again, that his work was to restore in man the, the, the um, image of God, which had been, which had been marred by sin. Yes? And all the time that he was restoring that image, he was always depending on God to um, guide him. Excellent. In the Garden of Eden, they came and, and served to him, so he wouldn't oh man there's a couple we have to run on to a couple more really big points because the, uh, man I had some really good stuff I wanted to share with you look at time it is already this is a huge lesson this week the imputed righteousness of Christ the penal substitution model claims that imputed righteousness means a declared righteousness that is something that is declared to be where imparted righteousness is something that happens and so I will be accused of of confusing imparted righteousness with imputed righteousness when I talk about transformation in the believer, that, uh, that I'm not wrong about that. It's just not what's happening in this particular context in Romans. What's happening here is imputed, the declared stuff. Later comes the imparted stuff. Listen to these passages. Um, this is a first one. It's out of Amazing Grace, page 181. It says, Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. God pronounces us just and treats us as just. What comes first here? Is being made righteous the same as being accounted or recognized as righteous? No. No. Be, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us righteous. Okay? Here's another one. But we all, with open faces, beholding, in a, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as the hidden treasure. 
we are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we take him as our personal Savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. Now get these words. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Is that a declaration or is that something happening inside us? How about this one? We aim to, by the way, that was grace, that was God's Amazing Grace, page 96. This is our high calling, page 364. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our we aim too low. That's exactly right. We aim for legal pardon. We aim for a record book adjustment. We aim too low. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Does that sound like a claim or a declaration? Or is it an attainment? And then the last one I've got here, that I may know him, page 206. He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die, that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What's the workmanship of God? Who's the workmanship of God? Is it books in heaven or is it people? Okay. So remove stains of sin from us, not from our record books, from the workmanship of God, and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. We're going to be restored to original purity through imputed righteousness. So when they come back and say, hey, that's imparted righteousness, this is imputed, it's theological dissection that causes confusion. It's not the reality of experience. Yes. Uh, when is that to happen? Before God gets here or after we get to heaven? He says, when is it to happen? Before God gets here or after he gets to heaven? It says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him face to face. Our characters are going to be transformed to be, it says in Revelation twelve eleven. these ready to meet Christ. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. There's a transforming process that happens here where we actually come to love God and love others more than self such that we are willing to give our lives for others before Christ comes again. There will be a people who can replicate the character of Christ in love before he gets there. Yes, the problem is people who ask this question don't focus on heart. They focus on behavior. We're not talking behavior. We're talking heart, a heart of love. You presented a compelling doctrine of salvation. But I want to go back to a question that was asked. I don't know if it was Lisa. I hardly read the voice. But what if a person doesn't understand the way that you present it? Ephesians 2, where by grace you can say faith. A lot of times when someone presents a, an interpretation of Scripture, they, they damn those who don't agree with that. When, if we're saved by grace, for example, I, my grandmother may have been a legalist. She loved Jesus, and she trusted God. She's going to be saved by His grace, whether she thought it was what I'm hearing. Soteriology is the word, a doctrine of salvation that you present. Yes. Um, would you allow that someone who didn't understand that, maybe you've been 
putting it in, in juxtaposition with the legal model. Maybe they believe they're declared righteous by God, that Christ died for them, and that they're set right with God. They're going to be saved by God's grace if they accept Jesus as their Savior. If they trust Him. Which many of them do. Then they're going to be saved. But what they're freed from if they understand the doctrine of salvation as you presented in Scripture, they're freed from the fear of God. Exactly. I, I just want to encourage us that we don't get into damning those who may have a different soteriology. Yeah. They, they trust God, too. They love God. They're, they're resting in His grace, though they may not yet have come to an understanding that you present. And I, I just appreciate your comments so much. And I want to, for everybody who couldn't hear it, um, he was he was asking, do you have to know how uh, this particular model, uh, this particular uh, description of how Christ is achieving our salvation to be saved? No, we aren't saved by what we know. We're saved by who we know. Isn't that right? This is life eternal. I know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and now sent. If people come to a knowledge of God and trust him, and the, and the metaphor that I give, if we are dying in a terminal state, and a doctor has a remedy that will cure us, do we have to know how that remedy was developed in order to benefit from taking it? Do we have to know how the remedy works inside us in order to benefit from taking it? We just have to trust the doctor enough to take the remedy. Okay? Yes, exactly right. But does that mean that, that because all we have to do is trust the doctor enough to take the remedy, that we are forbidden or there's no benefit in trying to understand what all he's accomplishing with his remedy? And so we are talking today about how he achieved the remedy, uh, how, how it works in us. But we don't have to understand those things. What we have to do is know God enough to trust him. And, and I am juxtaposing these things because I really believe that where we are in earth's history is that we as a people are to complete the Reformation. We as a people are to take a message. Uh, and one of the founders of our church wrote in Christ Object Lessons 415 that the final message of mercy to lighten the world for the coming of Christ is the truth about God's character of love. And I'm going to suggest that it is harder to see that truth in the penal substitution model when you have a concept of Christ having to do something to take wrath or when you have a God who will punish and kill the innocent in place of the guilty, then suddenly you're getting connotations of God that raises certain apprehensions and fears in your mind. Now, if, if those are not there and you can have that model and completely trust God, you're going to be saved. But I think it's harder. And I think we as a people have been called to, to free ourselves from those constructs and to present a, a picture that is cleaner and purer and, and more winsome so that people have that friendship with God. So um, we're going we're gonna to end here. I just want to tell you in the notes, I, I wanted to get to this. I, I, I put in the notes a, a quotation, if someone would like to stay by afterwards and go through it, where, um, where Ellen White actually uses some of this very legal, hard-to-understand language, a quote that would make it in the surface sound like it's that other model. And then we go through it, deconstruct it, and bring in, and this is what you have to do when you read Scripture or any, uh, any source, bring in 
a wide range of writings. And I'll re- uh, one, one, just one real quick, talks about pardon and justification are one and the same thing. That's a quote here. Pardon and justification, one and the same thing. It could make it sound like this is legal until you read in another place where she says, forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This is true Bible forgiveness. And so when you understand that true Bible forgiveness is a transforming process, then you have no problem with pardon and justification being the same thing. I wish we had time to go through all of it. Let's close with prayer and there's a brief announcement. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good that you came in the person of your Son to bring us the truth, and to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. In humility, we humble ourselves and open our hearts and ask, please send the Spirit. Fill our hearts. Take all that you have achieved. Reproduce it in us with with new motives, with a desire to love as you love, with new thoughts, with new motivations that we can go out of here glorifying you as we live a life that loves others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.